Welcome to the Arctic Institute's Bookshelf Podcast, where we explore the diversity of Arctic knowledge. In this podcast, we amplify the voices of scholars and experts from around the world to make the Arctic easy and accessible to everyone. So tune in and join our in-depth conversations that take you beyond the headlines and right into the latest ideas, challenges and experiences from the Arctic. Hello everyone and welcome to the Arctic Institute's Bookshelf Podcast. As always, my name is Romain Schiffer. And I'm Luba Simonina. And we're starting off our Spring Series 2022. In some episodes last year, we explored Arctic aesthetics and modernity and ideas of the Arctic in contemporary imaginaries. And today we wanted to explore this even further with our guest, Dr. Isabel Gap from UOT, the University of Toronto in Canada. Isabel, thank you for accepting our invitation to speak with us today. How would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? Yeah, thank you um, both for having me here today. Um, as Romain mentioned, I am at the University of Toronto, where I am an arts and science postdoctoral fellow. And I am currently working on my first book, uh, A Circumpolar Landscape, Art and Environment in Scandinavia and North America, 1890 to 1930. And I'm sure you'll learn much more about me as the conversation progresses. <laughs> that sounds so exciting. And thank you so much. We invited you today to speak about two recent <clears throat> publications uh, for you. Uh, one is A Woman in the Far North, Anna Boberg and the Norwegian Glacier Landscape in Kunstokultur, a Norwegian open access journal. And a book chapter on Arctic Impressionism, Anna Boberg and the Lofoten Islands. Perhaps as a first question to know, how did you get interested in the Arctic? Yeah, um, great question. Um, so in a very roundabout but kind of organic way, I guess, um, I, as a child at the age of 10, I actually moved to Sweden um, with my family and was brought up in the Swedish countryside. And so from sort of a very young age, um, developed quite a love for everything Swedish, um, following the seasons from spring, autumn, um, summer, my favourite being winter, I think there's a common, um, my neighbours recall a common sort of uh, memory of us as a family jumping around in the snow because we hadn't really seen it much in the south of the UK. Um, and so I thought I'd very much trace my passion for wintry scenes, at least, back to that early moment. Um, from an academic standpoint, I, um, as I said, I came, about, came to the Arctic in a very roundabout way. Um, I, I did a graduate dissertation on a Swedish painter, David Valin, at the University of Aberdeen where I did my undergraduate, and then um, followed this on doing a master's by research at the University of York, where I similarly looked at David Vallin, but expanding um, upon my earlier research. And here I was really lucky to work with uh, Professor Jason Edwards, who is a specialist in Victorian sculpture and who was beginning to toy with the idea of the Circumpolar North, specifically in relation to um, J.M.W. Turner and uh, British whaling um, history and imagery from within the Arctic. And um, thanks to him, I was introduced to a school of painters, a group of painters called the Group of Seven, um, who originate from Canada. And as anyone will know who, who is familiar with their work, the parallels between their landscapes and those of Scandinavia are, are, are very clear and obvious to the eye. And there's also a sort of a historiographical connection through an exhibition staged in 1912 to 13. So 
I very much came at it, came at it from a much more southerly um, northern perspective. And I found myself over the last sort of four years towards the end of my PhD and in the two years since com- completing my doctoral thesis, um, finding myself working um, my way further north as, uh, as my research progresses. So now I find myself staunchly within the Arctic, um, as well as sort of dabbling a bit with the circumpolar north. Thank you so much. That sounds extremely exciting. And uh, this episode actually ties really nicely with the conversation that we had before last year about Arctic imaginations and this host historiographical traditions and how they play out today. Um, so let's step right into your work and the recent articles that were mentioned before. And my first question to you would be, why then exploring Arctic landscape painting? Why do we need to rethink it, as you uh, say in your, in your articles? What's wrong with that? So um, to answer the first part of your question, why Arctic landscape painting specifically? Um, I am a landscape art historian. Um, I'm primarily interested in landscapes and visualizations of our natural environment. And so for me, it was a natural route to continue following this, this kind of line of thought um, into the Arctic. Uh, I will say that a lot of the work I do that regards the Arctic um, specifically regards coastal landscapes. Um, so grappling between this kind of liminal space between land, land and water. And then why we need to be thinking about Arctic landscapes and landscape painting specifically. I, I think as has been touched upon in, in previous episodes, specifically um, sort of Christian Drury and uh, in that episode on, on, on polar exploration, touch upon this way in which the Arctic has been pictorialized historically, uh, primarily from an Anglophone perspective. So from, from the point of view of, of Britain and America, and always in conjunction with polar exploration. And so in the 19th century, so my, my time frame working from the 19th century up until sort of the mid 20th century, these images of the Arctic um, are closely associated with ideas of imperialism, with ideas of whiteness, with ideas of conquest and um, land grabbing and sort of this disassociation from uh, and complete uh, eradication of the indigenous communities living within the circumpolar North and Arctic um, region. And so, you know, where, where this narrative kind of prevails in Arctic art history, if there is such a thing, I, I would argue as well that there isn't really such a thing as Arctic art history yet. I think there are art historians who deal with the Arctic. Um, but to date, the focus has very much been on sort of grappling with these colonial narratives and finding ways more often than not to kind of recontextualize them um, in line with sort of post-colonialism and centering indigenous voices within and perspectives within these landscapes. There's some great work, for example, being done at uh, the University of Tromso and the Arctic Humanities Research Cluster um, which is sort of centralizing the, the, the um, image of Greenland within depictions of the Arctic, as well as at the University of Copenhagen with a, a group called the Art of Nordic Colonialism, which similarly is seeking to challenge these kind of earlier assumptions about Arctic uh, visual culture. And so for me, um, this, this sort of um, 
turn towards looking at landscape painting in the Arctic provided a really interesting as well as timely opportunity to think about both environmental history and global climate change, both as sort of two two sides of the same coin that I deal with when thinking about visual material. In both publications, you talk about eco-critical thinking. Could you explain a tiny bit what you mean by this or what is meant by this? Yeah, of course. Um, so eco-criticism um, really was a field that first emerged in uh, the fields of literature um, and really in the last 15 years has caught on in art history. Uh, so there was some great work done by Greg Thomas back in the early 2000s, which looked at um, uh, French 19th century art in an eco uh, ecological context. And really since then, the field of eco-criticism has grown um, and is a sort of gaining pace over the last few years as we kind of hurtle into uh, kind of our, our ecological future. And so an eco-critical art history, there's been a lot written about sort of how we might approach it methodologically. Um, Andrew Patrizio provides a really comprehensive overview of how we might think and structure an eco-critical art history um, while kind of leaving the practical applications of that open to future and um, other scholars. And so for me, um, an eco-critical art history really sort of mobilises an array of perspectives So this encompasses both um, visual analysis, which I rely very heavily on. I, I, I really um, believe in centering the artwork or the object in, in the discussion, as well as cultural interpretation, indigenous stories, environmental histories, and as mentioned, climate change narratives. So eco-critical art history really is a very interdisciplinary avenue for us to think about um, landscape painting, land art, eco-art, or art that responds Um, to our global ecology. How do you apply this to the Arctic? It's, I mean, it's interesting because we, we've had these conversations in the past where we kind of said with our guests that the Arctic as a, as a research space is very multidisciplinary. So is it because uh, eco-critical art history is multidisciplinary that you can apply it to the Arctic is because the Arctic research sphere is multidisciplinary that's uh, much more conducive of uh, applying eco-critical art history or eco-criticism as a, as a methodology or a theory? I would say it's a combination of the two. Um, so I think, as, as you've mentioned and as previous episodes have touched upon, I think when we're thinking about the Arctic, it is sort of, from an academic standpoint, it is an inherently multidisciplinary space um, that grapples both with the sciences, social sciences and humanities. And I think the role of art history specifically has yet to play a prominent part in this discussion. Um, when we're thinking about um, the changes taking place uh, that have taken place and that are taking place in the Arctic environment, And I think, you know, something that was really touched upon in, in previous episodes is this role of the visual and the power of uh, visuality and visual material in kind of narrating um, Arctic stories, Arctic histories, um, Arctic environments. And, but, but very little still has been said about how we might use historical art in this context, um, 
contemporary art that relates to the Arctic engages quite heavily in kind of portraying climate emergency, whereas environmental complexities of our history in the Arctic are only really beginning to just take shape as we find kind of new avenues um, and ways of thinking about it. And I think what's fascinating is, as I said, I, I sort of I, I engage with coastal landscapes primarily and and you know, they're one of the regions that are set to be hardest hit by the effects of climate change. And it's really interesting to see how we might use historical imagery as a way of communicating these changes. I think there's no harm in finding as many ways as possible to communicate the effects of climate change. I think the more, the more avenues we explore, the more impact we might have. And so really sort of mobilising Arctic art history within these discussions um, holds great um, sort of opportunities for sort of public dissemination as well as academic and curatorial kind of um, narratives. And so an eco-critical Arctic art history really is interested in thinking about how we might consider sort of the environmental histories of the Arctic region um, and, and when I'm speaking about the Arctic region here, I might, I'm talking about the global Arctic region. You know, I think from a from a British perspective, we have a tendency to think towards the Canadian Arctic and sort of the Northwest Passage and these kind of parts of the world. That's kind of where our mind kind of drifts towards. Right. But when I'm sort of thinking about the Arctic, I'm thinking about the Arctic as a whole. You know, my focus comes from, I've only recently moved across to the Canadian Arctic up until, you know, recently my focus was on the Nordic Arctic. And I think as well, you know, we are so quick to neglect the Russian Arctic in these conversations. Although there is some great research coming about, especially in sort of a geopolitical context about how we might think about the Russian Arctic. But from a visual standpoint, I think our mindset, especially in, you know, Britain and America and Canada is very much focused on this one kind of 19th century trope of heroism. And so I think when we're thinking about eco-critical Arctic art history, which is maybe a bit of a mouthful and, you know, it's a lot of, a lot of connected words there. Um, you know, we're really thinking about how regions across the Arctic are connected through visual materials that inform us about past environments and also offer ways of thinking about future environmental narratives. That's a really great point and I absolutely agree with you, I must say. And there is indeed a lot of work now being done um, to collect those visual archives, so to say, of Arctic imaginations, right, and depictions to try to understand how they fit in and how they actually challenge the mainstream narrative. And um, in, with that in mind, I would like to ask you then, what's the role of the role and place of such personalities as Anna Buber uh, that you talk about in your article, uh, the role of their lives, of their works, of their thinking? Why, why did you pick her? <laughs> uh, perhaps my first question. And um, yeah, what's, what's her place then in trying yeah. to challenge those narratives? That's a great question. Um, so my reason for kind of picking Anna Bowberry is I have a bit of a soft spot for uh, neglected Swedish artists. Um, and so that is really the primary reason, uh, as well as the fact that she is a fascinating, 
badass woman who I believe we all should really know about. Um, so aside for those highly non-academic reasons, um, let's backtrack a little bit. For those who haven't heard of Anna Bobo, um, she was a Swedish painter born in 1864 and who spent a lot of her life, especially over, over a period of 30 years, visiting and painting the Lofoten Islands, as well as um, Troms and Finnmark in northern Arctic Norway. And so already she provides a really interesting um, way of thinking about the Nordic artist in that she is a Swedish artist painting Norway. And so she already breaks down these national sort of um, narratives that prevail in Nordic art history. Um, so around the time she was painting, uh, there was this what has since been categorised as national romanticism is this big sort of way of thinking about Norwegian, Danish, Swedish, Finnish, Icelandic landscape paintings specifically. And it ties to ideas of symbolism, of national identity and ways of kind of thinking about the land as, you know, um, as inherently national. And so already Anna Bobo for me provides a really interesting kind of antidote to these national narratives by being in Norway. And, and while I am happy for someone to correct me on this, um, my research so far hasn't indicated that she painted in anything in Sweden. Um, so I think that automatically provides a really um, sort of uh, exciting way of thinking about her. And then there's the aspect of, um, and this is something again, that, you know, I think this, this episode, um, I hope sort of brings together some of those sort of threads of thought that have been woven throughout your previous sort of discussions which is this idea of gender in the Arctic and that the Arctic has really been framed as it historically framed as a hyper-masculine space. And I think it's also important to note that this doesn't just relate to the Arctic. This is sort of like a polar narrative, you know, similar things exist in the Antarctic, you know, women weren't allowed uh, on British and American Arctic uh, Antarctic expeditions until the second half of the 20th century, for example. So this discussion of, you know, the polar regions as a masculine domain is something that is still very current. And really only in the last couple of decades is something that has started to be corrected. Um, Lisa Bloom wrote a sort of a wonderfully sort of seminal work in uh, the early 1990s on gender on ice. And, you know, nearly 30 years later, that still is the key sort of source that we look back to when thinking about um, the roles of men and women within polar spaces. Um, and so for me, Anna Bowberry was a really interesting way of thinking about alternative narratives of polar exploration from the perspective of a woman artist. And as my paper sort of makes mention, you know, there are other women in the Arctic. This isn't to say that Anna Bowberry was an isolated case. Um, the work of Silke Riplog um, has sort of brought it to, to attention a number of women artists working and uh, living within the Arctic. Uh, then there's also sort of artists such as Emily de Morhat and Anna Nordlander, a Danish and Swedish artist respectively, uh, painting among the Sami in. Uh, Sapmi across the Norwegian and Swedish borders. So Anna Bobo really is like a sort of an extension of pre-existing conversations, but in, an, in a way that doesn't um, just focus on her as a woman. I think, I think what's really interesting with her is she is a woman in the Arctic 
but she doesn't kind of restrict herself by her gender. So there's some very interesting or restrict herself by the, you know, the expectations of her gender. And so, you know, I think she writes about imagining herself as a eminent polar researcher. And uh, in my, in my article on, where I, on an Arctic impressionism, she imagines herself as an amateur fisherman um, um, with her own little boats. And there's some fantastic photographs. Um, if you don't want to read the articles, I just highly recommend you look at them for the visuals. Um, and I wish I could share all the photographs. If you're ever in Stockholm, you have to go to the, the Royal Library archives because the photos of her are absolutely fantastic. And, you know, we see her in her boat with her, with her catch in her hands and we see her rolling about in the ice with a glacier behind her. And so, you know, for me, she's just endlessly fascinating and provided ways of rethinking Arctic art history. You know, while, while my two publications so far are focused on Anna Bovary, they've really provided the sort of the starting point for furthering certain discussions surrounding Arctic art history. I found it so interesting uh, with the photos, especially the fact that these photos exist and they serve as a proof. We usually search for when we do women's history that this woman actually was there, right? Especially in the Arctic and especially in landscapes where women were not really present, not because they were not there, but because, right, because they were not seen as something that would fit in these landscapes necessarily. And to me, it was interesting that you use these photographs in your article to show her embodied presence uh, in these landscapes that uh, actually mattered to her not only in an aesthetic way, but she also had a very special connection to them that really transcended her work as an artist. It was much more than just being an artist and doing these paintings and then perhaps, I don't know, selling them or making uh, a living, you know, um, based on no, them. Absolutely. Um, I, think it's, I think it's really important when thinking about um, Arctic art history is to differentiate and between artists who were physically able to go to the Arctic and those that painted it from an Arctic imaginary. And so that's sort of a term that, you know, that's, that is used quite readily with regards to um, Arctic art history is this, Im this Arctic imaginary. And I think it's something I try to challenge um, or at least not challenge, but distance myself from is perhaps a better way of sort of saying it, of focusing instead on sort of environmental realities within the Arctic. Although with this said, and it's something I acknowledge, we have to remain kind of wary of um, sort of artistic license and that there is always a level of inspiration and imagination that takes place. You know, these aren't topographical drawings. These are kind of uh, interpretations of the landscape. But I think, you know, so often when we're thinking about ice, especially, which um, if anybody follows my work will be aware that I am weirdly obsessed with, um, you know, I think we, we think maybe to Caspar David Friedrich's work and we think of these sort of like jagged, uh, icy landscapes. Um, and we, we take these as representations of kind of a northern landscape of an Arctic environment. But it's also worth acknowledging that, 
he didn't go to the Arctic. You know, these were done off of um, exploratory uh, accounts. Um, the same thing can be said about actually a lot of the work done by the Hull Whaling School of Art, which I was fortunate to kind of um, think about um, in relation to an exhibition that took place at the Hull Maritime Museum a few years ago, um, and how a lot of these landscapes were actually done, again, following the return of whaling vessels to show the whaling ships within these kind of Arctic contexts. And again, the same thing can be said about panoramas. Um, this is something I, I'm fortunate to be thinking about a lot at the moment. And Arctic panoramas during the 19th century, again, were primarily inspired by sketches done by naval officers, um, as well as written accounts by those who travelled up into the Arctic. Again, when I'm saying Arctic here, I'm, I'm speaking about the Northwest Passage. You know, if we're thinking about the 19th century, we're really talking about this kind of... Uh, need to discover and explore, whether it be the Northwest Passage or the Northeast Passage. It's finding kind of ways of um, navigating and kind of uh, colonising these, these, these environments. And, and so with that, you know, I think with this kind of prolonged narrative of Arctic art history done off of, you know, hearsay and you know, maybe slightly embellished descriptions. I think it's really interesting to think about the artist's own place within these environments as and when that's possible. And I think, you know, in the early 20th century, this becomes increasingly possible. Um, you know, Arctic tourism is on the rise. And so it becomes far easier for artists to actually travel to these these landscapes. And I think it's also very worth bearing in mind that you know, the Lofoten Islands were not actually that remote by, you know, the late 19th, 30, 20th century. You know, they could be reached by train. They could be reached by boat. You know, they weren't actually these far, you know, and, and, and in fact, much of the Arctic was already at that point in the early 19th century, early 20th century, sorry. And so um, I think thinking about Bowberry's place within this is actually really interesting. And these photographs, which are just fantastic, taken by her husband, uh, the Swedish architect Ferdinand Bovary, um, are really, you know, wonderful. Because as you say, Luba, like, you know, having this material is, is so kind of unique is maybe not the correct word, but so refreshing, I think, when we're thinking about um, the presence of women, especially in the Arctic, who are so often, like you know, indigenous communities, kind of removed from this ideal of an Arctic environment. Right. And you stressed specifically in your article that she um, did her paintings outside, like in the open air, which I guess um, does make a difference, right? Especially when you think about weather conditions or certain environmental, you know, um, conditions that play a huge role. It was a challenge as it is today for many. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I, I think, you know, this is something I'm, I'm really interested in is the materiality of art making. And it's something that we so often, as art historians, ironically, we overlook. Um, we kind of acknowledge how it was made or what it was made with. But we very rarely think of the sort of environmental implications um, of using certain materials in certain environments. And, There's, there's a fantastic photograph of Bowberry um, 
clad in all furs. And she created this sort of a costume, really, uh, to be able to work on plein air in the Arctic. And so she had these fur um, breeches that came up to kind of her, kind of up to her chest. And then she had a long fur coat and then a fur hat. And then she had gloves that were made but would cover the, the tops of her hands so that her fingers and palms were still free to work but had a level of, level of warmth to them. Uh, she also devised a pallet, a portable pallet that would strap around her waist and around her thighs and that would enable her to paint from moving vessels. Um, so a lot of her work is of the harbours and fishing boats that sort of were involved in the Lofoten in- uh, fishing industry at the beginning of the 20th century. And, you know, as mentioned, she she had a passion for the for sort of this um fishing lifestyle and devised this sort of contraption that would allow her to work from unstable surfaces. And, and then when we just think about sort of the, the materials as well, I think it's something, you know, I've, I've come across quite, quite a lot and I'm sure many others have and sort of across the Arctic as well. And I've been thinking recently about the work of um, Frederick Horseman Barley, who was a member of the Canadian Group of Seven. And um, there's a wonderful anecdote about him going up into the Arctic in the 1930s aboard a uh, an HS, uh, HBC, a Hudson Bay Company uh, supply ship, uh, the Nascope, to, to paint. And he'd taken with him oils. Well, oils wouldn't dry in those conditions. And so his bunkmate, the ornithologist Terence Short, uh, recalls sort of uh, giving him his watercolours to allow him to actually be able to paint and sort of get over the frustrations of uh, the you know the, the limitations imposed by the, by this Arctic weather, and then as you mentioned, you know there's a lot a lot more has been sort of uh, sort of said about photography as well and sort of the the effects. And I think something actually we we kind of forget when we're looking at the photographs. I think we take the photographs sort of for granted as oh you just you just snap the camera and there you go there's your image and. And I was uh, listening into a, a brilliant conference held by the, the Royal Maritime Museum in Greenwich recently um, that was focused specifically on Arctic and uh, Antarctic photography, um, his, uh, mainly historical, so during the, during the sort of the race for the South Pole, so, so around that period of the turn of the century. And um, I, was, I was fortunate to be able to ask a question and regarding specifically sort of the conditions the weather can the effect of weather conditions on photographic processes and it was fascinating to hear you know the how we, we take these photographs so for granted and yet we're lucky to have them because the weather impacted the processes to such an extent that the number of photographs they could have had compared to the number of photographs they did have differed greatly and so I think you know thinking about um, Arctic art history really entails us to probe how certain materials work under specific weather conditions, and also how artists work. You know, it gets cold. 
I'm just I'm just curious as a as a follow up perhaps on um, this eco critical thinking. How much of a critical lens um, do you use when you look at the work of an artist like Boberg? Because she's a, I mean, obviously she's a woman, but she's also a woman from the south. She's a woman from Stockholm, going to the Arctic and depicting the Arctic in her paintings. And while it centers perhaps the female body in the Arctic, it might also provide a vision of the Arctic that's maybe not empty, but uh, going into those tro- those Western tropes that were going on at the time in, in Stockholm. So I'm wondering how much of a critical step you take when, when analysing uh, those paintings as well. No, that, that's um, a very good question. And it's it's one that I have grappled with quite a bit when it comes to Anna Bobre's work. Um, while I, I've said I'm, you know, a massive fan, uh, there are kind of, she does in some ways further these kind of tropes of an empty Arctic landscape. Um, I wouldn't say wilderness because I feel she does sort of recognise that it isn't a wilderness, specifically by this, through this focus on the fishing industry. With, but she, you know, over a 30-year period, and with the wealth of painting she did, you would expect to see more representations of the Sami in these visual narratives of the Norwegian Arctic. And it's something I, I only get the chance to briefly touch upon in my paper, but they're notably absent. Um, and, you know, Sapmi does extend as far as the Lofoten Islands and as far north as Troms and Finnmark. So, so she is working within... Um, this of these uh, indigenous territories, and yet there is no sign of any human presence. All we know is that she is physically there. And so, as you say, we, we get that image of, you know, the, the female body centred within an Arctic space. We also gather that tourism, or at least travel, is possible within these sort of, quote-unquote, remote regions. But any indication of uh, indigeneity is, or even the animal presence as well, is completely um, neglected. And I think that's where, you know, uh, Emily de Morhat's work in particular provides a really interesting counterpoint to Vanna Bowberry, um, who really centres um, the Sami reindeer herders and communities within depictions of Satmi landscapes. And, um, you know, I think it's something we have to, you know, bear in mind, you know, these, yes, it's important to acknowledge the role of women within these spaces, but we also have to remember that in most cases, these are, as you said, Southern women painting and traveling to and painting these northern environments and I think that's why it's really important to when we're thinking about gender in the Arctic to also especially today to also be thinking about indigenous women artists Um, and that's that's actually the focus of my postdoctoral research but the book has kind of shifted that around a little bit. (laughs) I guess we'll be looking forward to that. (laughs) So, so will I. <laughs> Thanks so much. That was really, really exciting. Um, I think it's 
it seems like it's a good point to start wrapping up. And I would add actually for myself that uh, perhaps combining this ecocritical art history of Arctic landscapes with um, glaciologist studies at this moment, when they do a lot of images, uh, like thousands, millions of images that, would, that they study and then analyze with the help of AI, and that actually would be so beneficial trying to challenge the narratives of seeing, right, and um, representing Arctic nowadays. Yeah, I mean, glaciers is something that, you know, I've hinted at um, so far, but, you know, they really are becoming the primary focus of my work and thinking a lot about how we might engage um, glaciology in an eco-critical art history and how this is to do so is an inherently collaborative and interdisciplinary process. And I think, we, you know, the one important thing to sort of mention as it goes back to this sort of what is an eco-critical art history, I think it's important to recognise that with eco-critical art history, methodologically, it, it sort of um, encourages interdisciplinary thought. But often this is interdisciplinary thought from the person of, from the point of view of an art historian. Um, whereas, you know, I think as we progress forward, the only way an eco-critical art history is going to really work and actually contribute something important is for it to be a collaborative and cross-disciplinary process. And for us to be pushing away, especially in an academic context, from a strictly single author focus, which is which prevails um, in, in our historical uh, uh, discourse, and to start thinking beyond the parameters of our history, to start thinking beyond style, technique, um, comp- just strictly compositional sort of methods, and really start thinking about how might we mobilise sort of the agency of these landscapes? How might we mobilise the agency of the glacier in visual narratives? And so, you know, that's something I'm pushing for and and in my own work and um, really hope to sort of see more of. On on the agency and the sentience of landscapes and and mountains and glaciers, there was a really good book, but I think it's a bit old now, uh, in the mid-2000s called Do Glaciers Listen?, um by i think julie crooks yeah and re- really good book which i um advise or recommend listeners to to go to your local library and or to university library and pick it up because uh, it's it's fantastic and brings local knowledge and indigenous perspectives and also um the, yeah as i said the, the glaciers as sentience as um uh, as agent of change as well Absolutely. I mean, um, Crookshanks, De Glacier's listeners, is fantastic. And as well, you know, if, if you're interested in more um, contemporary sort of literary responses to glaciers and, and ice more, more broadly, the Nancy Campbell's Library of Ice is wonderful. Um, M. Jackson's The Secret Lives of Glaciers, uh, again, from the perspective of a glaciologist. Um, and uh, this uh, last year, Gemma Wadden, uh, wrote uh, Ice Rivers. And so I think what's really interesting as well is we're seeing the shift from like this prevailing masculine narrative of the Arctic in the 19th century to kind of women now being central to kind of 
glacial image making narratives and futures. So I think it's really interesting to kind of see the shift that a lot of the really exciting work is is really coming from sort of both women and indigenous, sort of white women and indigenous women. Yeah, and it seems that we're shifting towards a more inclusive and perhaps emancipated <laughs> direction. I really hope so. I really hope we are. I think we are. I, I just hope we can, I hope we can keep the momentum going and, and really yes. make it more, make it more inclusive. You know, we, we we're talking you know about this shift in gender, but there's still a lot of work to be done to incorporate indigenous and 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 sort of um, center indigenous perspectives. Absolutely. Um, and within sort of these Arctic Arctic environments. And I think that's, as, as Lube said, a good point to wrap it up. Thank you so much, Isabel, for joining us today. Um, is there anywhere people can follow your work uh, online? Yeah, of course. And thank you both so much for having me. Um, I am on both Instagram and Twitter, but with different handles because I'd like to make things complicated. So on Instagram, you can find me at Isabel Gap and on Twitter at Izzy underscore, underscore Gap. It was a pleasure having you. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much.